Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how the New South Wales state election is playing out in rural areas and the impact of the High Court's recent ruling about the role of money in politics. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Gabrielle Chan. Gabby is a political writer for The Guardian and the author of the recently published book, Rusted Off. Hello, Gabby. Hi, Ben. My second guest is Ben Spies Butcher. Ben is an Associate Professor in Economy and Society at Macquarie University. Hello, Ben. Hi, Ben. So our first topic today, we are now less than five weeks away from the state election and quite a few of the key races will be in country New South Wales. Of the six most marginal coalition seats held on margins of less than 4%, only two of them are in Sydney. The coalition would be expected to face serious challenges in Upper Hunter, Monero, Lismore, Tweed, Goulburn, Bega, Kiama and Maya Lakes. And that's just by looking at the pendulum. A new front has also opened up in western New South Wales, with the coalition suffering big swings at a series of state by-elections over the last three years. The Nationals lost the seat of Orange to the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers in 2016, and the Liberal Party lost Wagga Wagga to an independent last year. They also faced big swings in by-elections in Cootamundra and Murray. And while most Greens' lower house seats are in inner-city areas, the Greens will be defending their marginal seat of Ballina while trying to expand into the neighbouring seat of Lismore. Gabby, what dynamics do you think explain the government's loss of support in country seats? Well, I think the um, it came off the back of council amalgamations. Uh, and there's a real... I mean, I wrote a whole book about it, obviously. Um, there's a real rusting-off process happening. I think um, country electorates are looking at, say, Western Sydney, very marginal electorates on the coast and... Uh, noticing how much attention they get from politicians and it's that simple process of oh okay if if we're gonna you know get more attention then maybe we should change the way they vote we we vote so I think there's that dynamic it came off the back of council amalgamations as I said the greyhound decision to ban greyhound racing was reversed pretty quickly but council amalgamations have pretty much gone ahead and that challenged people's sense of place. You know, place is really important in in rural towns. And, you know, there's often the sense that the bigger town or the bigger area or the bigger city is getting more attention than the little, smaller place. And I think that has played a real part. Well, one of the big changes has been the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party who... Um don't really engage that that much in federal politics, uh, but have had seats in the New South Wales Upper House for many years, but also didn't run candidates in lower house seats. And we've kind of seen them um, emerge as local contenders in a lot of these regional areas. They always had a decent vote in regional areas, but didn't try and compete with the nationals. Ben, where do you, like, apart from council amalgamation, like, why is that, why is this happening now? Or, or maybe it's, maybe it's been a long process. Yeah, yeah, I think there are two separate bits, at least, to this. Um, and Gabby probably knows more about it than I do. But, I mean, there's a long history of uh, regional independence and rural independence that uh, go through from the last long-term Labor government. And uh, a strategy, partly by Labor, of fostering these non-national party other voices to be able to compete effectively, to be able to divide the op- their opposition. So the shooters are seen traditionally as... Being somewhat being conservative, although maybe not uh, easy easy to classify, but they they have been able to kind of 
find ways to work with Labor in a way that maybe some Labor voters in the city wouldn't like the sound of. But, um, you know, Labor, when they were in lasting government, was able to work with the shooters, but they've also been able to do preference deals. And it has been interesting to see how the Nationals have... um, have been much more critical of the Shooters Party in recent times than than Labor has been. I think because there's some sense of Labor and the Shooters finding a way to work together and make preference deals that probably help them both. Yeah, so I, I think that's certainly happening. And um, maybe unlike some of the other uh, conservative groupings that weren't just independents, um, the Shooters kind of have already made infrastructure. Um, there are a whole series of clubs that they're kind of based on. And in fact, some of the legislation that John Howard brought in um, in buying back guns partly set up an infrastructure uh, that was that partly now supports the, the Shooters Party. Um, but it also means they've got people on the ground, they've got a real membership base, and that's different from um, other things which kind of come and go a little bit like One Nation that s- disintegrates shortly after they've arrived. So I think that certainly is one thing that's going on. I think the other thing that's going on is there is a shift in the demography of many um, regional areas where uh, agriculture and mining aren't the main things that employ people, um, health and education are, and the importance of those public services uh, has shifted the game so that labour is now much more competitive in areas where it wasn't as competitive before. And so a lot of those seats that you read out, they're not competitive for the shooters, farmers and fishers. They're competitive for the Labor Party. Mm. And that's on issues like schools and hospitals. Yeah, definitely. And just on that issue of party infrastructure, particularly in Western New South Wales, what you see is people who might present more like an independent, say, at a federal level, will go for, stand for the shooters, fishers. You know, you have Roy Butler, the vegetarian, standing for Barwon because they have that party infrastructure that, and, and, and these seats are huge. Like Barwon takes, you know, in a huge corner of Western New South Wales. Hard to cover if you don't have both people on the ground, a bit of campaign funds and, and, a, and a ready infrastructure. Um, and definitely that issue of the services economy, the um, public service, replacing uh, jobs, you know, that used to go probably to, you know, out of agriculture to people who work on farms, um, who work in mines. That's that's changing rapidly. Technology on farms is changing the workforce space uh, in country towns like mine. Um, and so that's got to translate, change the way that people are voting on the ground. Yeah, I mean, it was... a. Uh Interesting re- reading your book recently, Gabby, the the dynamic of these places that are kind of still looking for a new niche for employment and, um, you know, the, with with the rise of the service industry, it, it doesn't, does make it harder to, to find those jobs and that really does change the dynamic in these seats compared to back when, when you know, the old country party used to, used to dominate. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the point that I tried to make in the book was that, um, say, out of town, farmers and in town used to be much more closely connected because of the links between agriculture and the and the requirements, the service uh, businesses that service the farms. And so there was a sense of, um, I guess, mutual benefit in a political force that kept agriculture going. Whereas now there's a breakage in that in that link, and so they. Those two groups see themselves as as quite separate now, and so 
you know, you've got the National Party, the old country party still, you know, um, talking about farmers and agriculture a lot. But, I, you know, I mean, that's, I've been critical of them because they haven't talked about the rest of, uh, you know, the electorate in, in these country seats. And those people feel quite neglected for that reason. They feel like their interests are no longer um, perfectly aligned with farmers' uh, interests. So, so council amalgamations, the greyhound racing, they were big. They were big issues that um, have dominated some of these by elections. They, they're both issues where it sort of faded from the public debate a little bit. Some of the council amalgamations were cancelled. The other ones went through, but it's a couple of years ago now. The government backflipped on greyhound racing. What do you see the issues being in these electorates, and are they different between these kind of Labor Liberal races, sort of along the coast, and maybe the the races where the shooters or the Indies are more in play um, further further inland? So I see sort of two distinct kind of related things. So as Ben said, the changing demographics is one thing for those, particularly for those coastal seats. Mm. Um, you know, where you can get, say, in the 2015 state election, you get, you know, a seat which would normally... Seats normally, you know, if they're going to change one way, they cha- they may jump one kind of political ideology to the next. Um, it, on the north coast, you saw Ballina jump Nat Greens. Um, they kind of skipped <laughs> everyone in between. But um, the other the other thing is um, uh, the the general uh, interest of people and the disengagement with politics and the crankiness about politics tends to you know you you, you see it reflected on individual issues say council amalgamations greyhounds but it it refracts into a bigger um, issue which is about trust in the government process. So amalgamations, while the issue itself may have passed in the public debate, on the ground it's still translated into they told me one thing and they did another. And so that goes to my trust in politicians. And so can I trust any any other political process that's happening? So, for example, I did a uh, moderated a debate in Dubbo the other day, and it was around um, infrastructure in the New South Wales election. It was absolutely dominated by the process for buying the route of the inland rail corridor, which is very much a federal issue, although state government has planning say over that ultimate process. But people were saying we don't trust the process. We don't. We want to know exactly how you chose this route to prove to us that you didn't choose it to benefit certain mates or benefit big business. So, so again, it's that sort of small, um, either voter, small town against big, big vote, big banks, you know, people with lots of influence, people with wealth. Um, you know, they mentioned toll or, or coals or woolies that just want to get their goods from Melbourne to Brisbane quickly as possible. And, and so these areas are terrified of becoming kind of the train version of the flyover, you know, states in, in the US. So so their issues, while they're particular to place, they refract into, you know, those general issues around voter disengagement, distrust of politicians, 
and the media, by the way, and 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 all of those bigger issues that we've heard through Brexit and Trump and and various other contests around the globe. I think you're you're right, Gabby. There's also a real tension for the National Party, which has been emerging for a few decades now, but is becoming more and more difficult for them to manage. Which is the Liberal Party, are, are particularly in New South Wales, are a very free market party. Uh, and that doesn't gel well with what was a kind of form of agrarian socialism. That, Absolutely, yeah. Which, yeah, was, you know, peddled by the, the or supported by the, the country party. And that meant they could be socially conservative, but they were also economically protectionist. Yeah. And um, that's not what's going on at the moment. Um, and the kind of big money that's in politics, I, I think, from both sides and that that lack of trust reinforces that these guys are not there being their community representatives to make sure they're brought along for the ride. Uh, one of the you know the reasons I think Labor's becoming increasingly competitive, a lot of these areas are quite poor. Mm. Um, so while well, actually many of the, the seats that Labor has traditionally targeted in Western Sydney are increasingly affluent and actually increasingly mm. difficult for them to manage because of the that dynamic. Those areas are changing in the opposite direction. Yeah. There's a voter impatience now. So you know how we used to give governments a go over over a series of terms and then, you know, decide there's the time factor. I think people are get in their crankiness with politicians, they're getting more impatient. And the other the other real element here is that it's hard to win um, across the nation on a policy because that policy may be taken differently in different places. And and I'll give an example, say, for the New South Wales election. I was driving um, through Goulburn today and I picked up the local Goulburn paper. As I said, I'd been in Dubbo for the, for the in, uh, infrastructure forum now, in the paper, they reported the recent $2.8 billion um, announcement that, uh, that there was going to be this deal with a Spanish train company to design, build and maintain regional rails in Dubbo. And the Nationals are under real pressure in Dubbo because there's an independent there called Matthew Dixon who is really pushing them to the edge and could win in that seat, Right. Now, I'm not saying that that was the reason it was announced there, but that's how it's been interpreted, you know, in other seats other than the seat of Dubbo. So you pick up a paper in Goulburn, and Goulburn, you know, is questioning uh, its local outgoing local member, Prue Goward, on whether, you know, this is a kind of political decision just so that they can win the seat of Dubbo. Now, I actually think probably 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, right back to the beginning of the country party, that would have been seen as, oh, great, we're going to have this um, facility in country New South Wales and we will get the 200 jobs out of construction and 50 jobs. But now this is, you know, seen through the lens of, oh, Dubbo's got something that Goulburn should have got. Does that reflect uh, there's there's less spoils and there's a, there's a bit more of a like less things less opportunities are coming. These areas are less successful than they maybe once were, and thus, um, you know, it's it's more competitive. I mean, is that part of it? Yeah, I think I think it's also it's as Ben said that it's that search for what is our next industry going to be. What is the thing? You know, every every place, every town, every region is trying to find a way to, you know, make the region economically more powerful. Uh, 
ensure that their kids come back after they go away to study. Um, so, you know, an industry, Goulburn, already has a railway workshop. They already maintain trains. So they're saying, well, why wouldn't you just use our facility rather than doing a purpose-built facility in Dubbo that isn't there? Mm. So, you know, there, there's much more... I think there's much more scrutiny of the policies um, and and much more, much more of a um, tendency for rural newspapers to, to really scrutinise and call things out on behalf of their constituents, probably in a more place-based way, not in a general, you know, we're pissed off, we're country people, we're not getting as much as the city. It's much more nuanced in its sense of place. You've elegantly explained uh, the National Party's problems in the kind of inland New South Wales regions. On the other hand, they have these seats on the North Coast where they've been losing ground partly because those areas have been having more uh, sea changes coming to them. I don't know if that's actually made those areas more affluent, but it certainly has meant that there has been this population growth. Some of some areas like the far North Coast now start to resemble in some ways the kind of outer fringe of a city rather than more country areas in some ways, and we have the rise of the Greens. What, what do you think are the... Are the Dynamics that are that are playing out for the Nats as they try and hold on to these two quite distinctly different kind of places. So I mean, I do think that that you know the dynamics along the coast are are very different from inland, uh, and there's parts of them that don't just look like outer suburban Sydney; they look like the absolute centre of Sydney. Uh, the the sorts of house prices you see in some of those coastal you know coastal towns are astronomically high. Um, you have the sorts of problems where. Uh, that you had when you know Balmain and Glebe were gentrifying, which is that people who grew up there, who aren't necessarily the kids of professionals, uh, don't necessarily see themselves getting the same jobs. They can't afford to rent anymore. They have to move away in order to be able to get jobs. So that is causing, a, I think, a very different kind of challenge and one that maybe Labor is a little bit more um, equipped to handle than, than the National Party, uh, as well as creating a new constituency that is... More, much more sympathetic to the Greens. Um, so, yeah, the National Party has to balance that. And I think that's one of the reasons you've, you know, you saw a National Party minister who absolutely went hell for leather to support Gonski. Um, and you saw uh, an attempt to, you know, when almost everything was getting privatised in, you know, asset recycled in New South Wales as a way of trying to boost infrastructure spending. We now have um, a coalition government that's you know, categorically ruling out privatising hospitals and pumping lots of money into employing nurses as one of its biggest um, spends. Uh, and I think that is the way that it, it has realised it needs to be able to be competitive with those in those kinds of seats. Uh, I mean, it completely helps Dubbo as well. That overlaps um, those regional hubs. It doesn't help so much necessarily in the places that aren't regional hubs in the smaller towns. So, yeah, the, the politics is more complicated. And I think one of the problems for the National Party is its solutions increasingly look like pork barrelling. They don't look like the kind of collective infrastructure that unites people, that the wool board, the wheat board, the egg board, the milk board did in an era of protectionism, um, where there was a kind of sense of, well, uh, it's our industry is getting protected, your industry is getting protected. If anyone's left out, we'll protect your industry too. Um, there might be some economic problems with that, but there was a cogent political logic to it, which built solidarity and meant that everybody saw themselves as part of country Australia uh, with common interests. And I think Gabby's right that that's breaking down and the, the kind of game for who can get 
the big infrastructure spending is a much more atomizing and competitive one uh, than the previous kind of version was. Yeah, the the other thing I would say is the environmental issues I find are so fascinating across all rural and regional seats. So, you know, you, what you saw in those North Coast seats and, and I think the reasons why the Greens are making such inroads um, and I, I, I believe Sue Higginson, you know, should get pretty close in Lismore, right? Um, the, the coal seam gas and mining and land usage fights have really opened people up to a wider conversation on environmental issues and specifically climate change. So when I was doing stories on the CSD pro- project up at um, Bentley, uh, which was, has since been cancelled. Um, a licence handed out uh, under Labor and then, you know, the coalition, the New South Wales Coalition was going to go ahead with it. Those, the, the farmers, the old farmers that I spoke to who had, you know, these guys were fifth-generation National Party voters, you know. Dad set up the, the National Party or whatever in our little local town. They were so cranky about the way that they had been treated. Um, they had been accused of being activists when they were just, you know, they were they were your ordinary average run-of-the-mill farmer and they were really uh, angry about the way that they'd been treated by the, by the New South Wales government. So that immediately started this conversation. You had people twirling fire sticks at... Um, protests over CSG talking to farmers in their RV sellers shirts, which is like the standard shirt in the bush, you know, what the standard work shirt. And just seeing that image, it just, you know, it was like a, a cold slap to the face. This, this is going to change politics, right? And it's being replicated in, uh, in Barwon, around the CSG project there, um, the Santos project in Narrabri, and now you're getting the conversations about Murray-Darling Basin and the National Party ministers, Niall Blair, the Water Minister, John Barillaro, the leader of the National Party, having to go into those meetings down at Menindee Lakes, you know, and explain themselves. And that sort of anger on the ground now is hard to combat for the National Party and also the balance of how to appear, you know, how to really grab environmental policies. I think you've seen last week, Noah Blair came out and started talking about climate change for the first time that I've heard. Um, Suddenly everyone switched on to climate change and this has been a long time coming changing the way people are thinking about, you know, voting. I mean, those cross-cutting issues around the environment are absolutely fascinating in building new constituencies. I think it partly does reflect the problem of extractive industries in Australia, and I wouldn't just say mining, but the way water is used is kind of semi-extractive mm. in the in the Murray-Darling, um, which means that we give all the resources to industries that have very high profitability and can earn export dollars, but actually don't really employ anyone, Mm. right? So they hollow out all of the social infrastructure that's around them and create this potential for environmental and social sustainability issues to to get common cause. Um, And I think that's what we're seeing in those towns where, you know, those extractive industries are are taking a lot that's not priced properly or not considered properly, whatever language we use. Um, and is destroying both the social and environmental surroundings in which it, you know, in which it operates. 
I, I think the, the the other interesting conversation around that that I'm hearing more and more, um, particularly amongst farmers and farmer organisations, is how to cost in those uh, external what what has previously been external costs. Um, so. You know, things like water. Like, what does it cost to take water out of the Murray-Darling Basin, not just in terms of the price of water on the on the market, but in terms of the price to the environment? Or, you know, what does it cost... What does my wage cost if I'm working for $2.50 an hour as a dairy farmer? You know, is it is it really to have someone, you know, externalise all of those costs and not see them in the price of food or the, or the cotton T-shirt that's produced for four, that you can buy for $4 at, down at Big W, you know? That, that, those sorts of conversations, I think, are really changing and farmer organisations are now starting to talk about, well, you know, if, if um, our city customers want to see a clean, green story about where their food comes from, do we have to pay for, say, eco, what they call eco-services, landscape services, so cutting off areas to plant more trees, you know, looking after creeks, fencing off creeks from stock so that um, they don't get, you know, trashed. Um, those sorts of issues, I think, are really going to dominate conversations, you know, in the next couple of decades in agriculture and also the, the push that we're seeing for from people, city-based customers, who really expect better environmental outcomes. The New South Wales government recently lost a case in the High Court brought by a number of New South Wales unions challenging provisions of the New South Wales election funding law. The issue at question was a massive cut in the cap for how much third-party organisations such as unions could spend in the state election, down from $1.2 million to $500,000 per organisation, which created a gap between how much political parties were allowed to spend and how much third parties were allowed to spend. The court found that the change put an impermissible burden on the implied freedom of political communication. This is not the first time we've had major election funding laws in New South Wales struck down by the High Court. Thanks to union challenges, we had a 2013 ruling striking down laws passed under Barry O'Farrell's government, which banned corporate and union donations and had counted affiliated union spending as part of the spending cap for the party they were affiliated with. Ben, how do you think these election funding decisions are going to affect the state election? Well, you'd think I mean, it's the unions who brought the action. You, you'd certainly think that they're in the best position to be able to mobilise for the election. Um, and I mean, the amount of money we're talking about is, it's a really interesting question, I think, the money, because it's not enormous amounts of money. So we were talking $1.2 million is the cap before, and it was five, and it reduced to $500,000. So to get, put that in perspective, Clive Palmer spent $3.7 million in one year in the lead up to a federal election. And, you know, in terms of a, a broadcast TV advertising campaign, that'd be pretty pretty hard, right? The mining companies spent, almost, what, $20 million in their um, advertising campaign. But what this has put money into is organising on the ground, uh, employing organisers, printing materials, getting local advertising, uh, often over long periods of time in the lead up to the election. Uh, and it's a strategy that largely emerged out of um, the 2007 election, particularly Your Rights at Work, um, by the ACTU, but also increasingly by GetUp as well, um, and now by a few other 
campaign organisations, which have got a really big effect. But the way they mainly get their effect is actually not primarily just by spending money. It's by getting lots of people out campaigning. Mm. Um, and it's the infrastructure that supports all of those people campaigning. And I mean, I think we should always be worried about money in politics generally. But there's a flip side in political science, which is when you take all the money out, what you do is you leave the incumbents in a privileged position that no one's allowed to challenge because it's not clear how anyone mounts a campaign against the party mm. that's already in, already there or the parties, the set of parties that are already there. So the, the shift that I think has taken place is actually quite pro-democratic in that the relationship the unions now have to Labor has changed from one where they had seats on governing bodies, their executive, votes at conference, and essentially donated money to them. They would write a check. Yeah, yeah. they would write a check. That's This is how they influence the Labor Party. So now the main way they influence the Labor Party is that they go and win some of these marginal seats we were just talking about in the first half of the program by embedding organisers on the ground and getting whole teams of volunteers to go and door knock about Gonski and um, Medicare. Mm. Right? And that requires lots of real ordinary people to be involved in the process. You, it's much harder to kind of cut deals. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't still things to be done, but it, it does involve a kind of internal democratic logic of mobilising lots of people on real issues that lots of people care about. And not only does that influence who wins the election, it also influences the actual political agenda. That is, what are the promises that Labor makes and that the coalition makes in order to respond to the campaign means they actually have to respond to these specific issues that lots of people care about. And so I do think that that was the thing that the coalition were most worried about. Um, I don't think it was buying up lots of um, ad TV ad time. Yeah. And that was what was worrying about it. And I think that's probably what's good about the high court decision, even though... I'm always nervous by courts striking down limits on um, on money in politics, right? We've seen what's happened in the US where there have been court decisions that allowed super PACs to operate partly mm. on a very similar basis. Well, the part of the dilemma, right, is that there aren't that many political parties. Like a major party will usually try to be one party or I guess in the case of the coalition, two parties. Uh, whereas there's no there's no particular limit on how many third parties can run, right? Like there is the union movement, but that could well be 30 different organisations that are... Mm. Uh, that are registered to run, to work. So you do have this difficult balance of you don't want to make a situation where the only people who can spend significant amounts of money are political parties, but if their money is swamped by outside forces, you do end up in that kind of US-style situation where you could see large amounts of money uh, being dominant. And it is interesting, like, yeah, that it costs money to run those grassroots campaigns and more money helps but th there is a certain point where you probably reach a limit on how much money you can spend through that method. I mean, Clive Palmer is an interesting example because he did spend a lot of that money through ad revenue and it never seemed like a particularly efficient way to campaign, but in the end it, it was so much money that it kind of made an impact and we'll see whether he can do that again this time because it seems to be, again, a kind of... His money is being spent all over the place uh, without any particular sense of targeting. And I think that, I mean, part of what the courts are doing here, it seems to me, is trying to work out a sensible balance and the decisions which are well you can put a cap on it and you can even rule out some people from doing it but you have to make an argument that's about democracy to do so you have to show mm. there's a corruption risk you have to show that they're drowning out other voices I mean, they seem like reasonable kinds of tests to put on these sorts of laws i think there is a much much bigger problem federally where there are no laws at all mm. and uh, particularly with the mining uh, case and the mining laws it is just entirely possible for a very large industry to mobilise tens of millions of dollars to threaten to mobilise even more 
uh, and to blackmail governments. And that, that is a really serious problem. I'm really conflicted by this money thing because my, my, my gut instinct is, you know, money in politics, yeah, nah. Um, and what's going to be interesting about this uh, federal election, particularly in, in races that we're seeing in, say, Warringah, um, is a lot of high-profile people coming in and funding on the ground that they want some action on climate change, right? So often, you know, the political debate is around this kind of progressive notion that, oh, we we need action on this stuff. So Mike Cannon-Brooks good, um, Clive Palmer bad, you know. Um, it was reported Clive Palmer was in the fin, was going to spend probably $50 million by the by the May election. Um, Mike Cannon-Brooks, the Atlassian uh, billionaire, cool, cool dude, you know, baseball cap, comes in and says, anyone that wants to run against Tony Abbott, I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll, where do I send my check? And and yet that's kind of accepted by the, you know, by the uh, general kind of progressive commentariat as okay. So, you know, I find it really hard to know how to think about this because on the one hand, you know, as both of you have said, you want to be able to mobilise people who are all obviously voters as well um, and get some funding to run a campaign to challenge incumbents. That's how you've seen independent campaigns like Cathy McGowan's rollout where they did small-scale small crowdfunding to raise, uh, I think it was 300000 or something along those lines to run that campaign. But where does it morph um, into something else, I guess, that, that we don't know about? I guess transparency is the key, right? So you know, more real-time donation, you know, better rules around real-time donation so that we can see who's influencing at the time they're influencing would be, you know, the, the most basic change that I could see that would allow everyone to have a little more confidence in the process. You're absolutely right. I think the other big one is caps, and I think that was one of the most innovative things about the New South Wales laws when they came in, and they came in under a coalition government, yeah? Yep. You can't have a sensible conversation about money if you can just keep on going to the sky with how much money mm. you spend. Mm. If you can put caps on it, then you put it back in the realm of ordinary people being able to participate in mm. it. Mm. Uh, and I think that is overwhelmingly the most important thing, that if you limit uh, the amount that's being spent. And I think one of the questions, which I think is an intellectually interesting one, is how do you work it out if you know you split up 20 organisations that are all basically campaigning on the same thing? Do they all get to spend their own little amounts in these caps? And I think that's a, a question, but... Um, we just need to be convinced that they're really different. I mean, Clive Palmer's one guy, as mm. is the other millionaire, and I think there is a difference between one individual rich person or a corporation mm. being able to donate mm. lots of money or organisations that actually raise money through lots of small donations from real people being able to mobilise those campaigns. That's also an argument for why you, you might want to put the limits on the size of donations. You might say, look, if you can raise that money through 50,000 people giving you 100 bucks." We we value that more than one person being able to spend, what is that, $5 million? Uh, shouldn't do math live on air. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is that is an argument for going for the, uh, for the other end of the equation and saying we're going to restrict 
where the money comes from as opposed to restricting how the money is spent. But you kind of need a bit of both. Think about the alternative of what happens. And I, this is a real, because I really, I agree that problems with money are, are real and, and difficult. But you imagine we've got public funding. It largely comes from the last election, right? That's where everyone's got their money hmm. from. They got it from the last election. They've got a lot of it because we've got public money now instead of private money. And no one's allowed to raise any money. Well, how does any new entity get established yeah. to challenge yeah. the old people who have already got all their money? Yeah. It'd be hard enough for the opposition major party to to come back, let alone a new party to emerge. And it just encourages parties who really don't have lots of members or lots of really enthusiastic supporters anymore to be able to use these kind of oligopolistic tactics to crowd out opposition um, and kind of deaden the the new challenges from being able to come onto the field. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you to Ben and Gabby for joining me. Thanks, Ben. Thank you very much. And thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Ben. And so Gabby's book, uh, Rusted Off, is out now. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. This show is recorded in the studios of 2SER Radio in Sydney. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.